All right. Are you ready to study the scripture? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 13. That's where we're going to start. But before that, um, just by way of introduction, we've been on this Explore God series, and today we're going to tackle a big question, and the question is, is Christianity too narrow? This is a great discussion, great question, sometimes hard to answer. Let's get sort of a reference and a context for the question by watching uh, this short video together uh, about this idea. I think I'd be ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is. It's just what I believe it is. I know different religions, you know, have their different belief systems, but I think at the end of the day, it all boils down to being one God, no matter what, over all of us, even though people put it in different, you know, terms and languages, etc., etc. Some people just, they need religion, they need Jesus, and they need something to believe in. And uh, my response would just be, good, good for you. I think there's, um, religion's a double-edged sword. It's, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And I'm not sure if it's from religion that the bad or the good comes out of it or whether it's the people. La cristianidad es muy importante porque podemos aprender valores cristianos donde no podemos, uh, donde descubrimos más acerca de nosotros. These days, I think too much religion is based around money when money has nothing to do with God. What the hell does God need money for? The fundamentals of Christianity, like the values that are taught are important and they all serve positive purposes. Some people that I've met, it's just, I've had friends and and the minute they find out about me or the minute that I, I do anything that doesn't follow their religion, I'm, they don't want anything to do with me. There are many ways as there are people in the world to God. Each person has their own path. My view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that, you know, it's not, there's no one truth about, about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. I respect a lot of faiths, and I think that Christianity is a pillar that's influenced by the other great religions in the world. I think that a lot of it is intolerant, and I think a lot of the intolerant Christianity is used as a battering ram to try to either create or go back to something that doesn't exist anymore. I think um, that people tend to confuse the word religion with, um, with Christianity and what the Bible actually says. I think there's some wonderful teachings in Christianity and wonderful sayings. Um, and I find that there are many, whether it's priests or whatever relig Christian religion, people who are really spiritual. But unfortunately, I find them the exception, not the rule. And I think, again, it becomes more enforcing a set of values rather than exploring truth with other people. It's trying to tell people what to believe rather than helping them find it. Wow, so many diverse opinions about religion in our culture. And it is a little weird to think about other, other people's viewpoints as so much different than ours. And I, but I think it's good for us to kind of get used to the diversity because that's what leads us to great conversations. Um, you know, I, I was... Um, 
I was raised in church. I grew up right on the front row of the church. My parents, I was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. You've heard me say that a lot. And, and so I, I grew up on the front row. At 16 months, I was sitting on the front row by myself because mom was playing the organ and dad was preaching. And uh, I don't know how they got me to do that. Um, I couldn't get my kids to do it. But um, <laughs> they, there is something that happened to me as I, as I was a young pastor, as I I was, I was doing a project in the church that I was pastoring at, and we were, this project was a prayer and worship project, and we were putting it together, and it was to arm people and encourage people to pray, all right? And we were praying for an area of the world called the 1040 window. Some of you may or may not have heard of it. It's an area uh, uh, between 10 degrees and 40 degrees across the north part of Africa uh, and Middle East and Asia, and it's uh, the... Uh, the three dominant world religions. Christianity doesn't really have a foothold there. Um, uh, but we were, we were praying for this area of the world, uh, for missionaries and for, for Jesus to open it up to uh, people for the gospel message. And, uh, and so as we were praying about it, we, got a, we, we hired a person to help us with the project to, to do the cover artwork. Well, it just so happened that... Um, this person was not a believer in Jesus. And so we, but we were working with her and having great conversation. And she invited us over to her, uh, she was working from home and she had this place where she worked from at home. So she invited us over to take a look at how her progress. So we go over, me and two other folks, and we come to her house and we're there. And she says, oh, just a second, I gotta go, I gotta get something. And she opens up this huge armoire, okay? It was sitting over um, against the wall and huge, I mean, it was just ginormous. She opens up these huge doors and there he was. The biggest personal Buddha I'd ever seen. I mean, gold, he was there in all of his splendor. And I was like, as I was a young pastor. I was like, oh, what do I do here? <laughs> hey, <laughs> nice Buddha, <laughs> <laughs> do, do I say anything? Do I not say anything? Do, what, what, what am I supposed to do here? I mean, she had the incense. She had the candles. I mean, she was serious into it. She was Buddhist. And so she uh, meditated every day. And so we, ha we began to have a little conversation about it. And it was, it was so fascinating. It w was when that, that project became incredibly personal. Because here's this woman who has a totally different perspective on religion than we did. And I think there's a, there's a challenge with us in our culture. It's very hard for people to discuss this. You know, there's two things in American culture you're kind of not supposed to discuss in, like, at dinner parties, right? What are they? Politics and religion. Do you know? Okay, so just think about it for a second. Why... Why do, is that part of our culture? Why do people say that about American culture? You know, they don't say that about European culture. They don't say that about other places. They say it in American culture because these are the two most deeply held values for us. The ability to have a free and elected government and the value of worshiping the way we want to. These are inherent in our beginnings as a nation. They are so valuable to us. And people, because they're held so deeply, people fight about them. Right? So what we have to learn how to do as Christians is understand how to discuss this idea. Is Christianity too narrow? There's a story. Many of you have probably heard it. It's a, 
It was, uh, I, I learned it through uh, an, an author named Leslie Newbigin, and he was a missionary to India. And there's an, there's an Indian story about a king who brought in a bunch of blind men to figure out uh, if, they could, if, they could, if they could figure out what an elephant looks like. But they're blind, so he, he brings in the elephant, and the king brings in the elephant, and, and the blind men come in, and one of them starts feeling the side of the elephant. And he's, and he's like, oh, it's a wall. There's a wall of some kind right here. And then another one was grabbing the leg, right? And, and he said, oh, it's a, like a tree. There's a, it's a tree here. And the other one was grabbing the trunk of the, is that what it's called, the trunk? Snout? Trunk. Grabbing the trunk, he says, no, it's like a snake, it's like a snake, and, and, and then another guy, you're starting to get the ideas, and then one guy was at the ear, he's like, oh, it's a fan, it's like a fan. It's, it's, here's, here's the point of the story, the moral of the story, so often as people tell it is that this, this is how religion is, this is how God is. No one person can possibly really get it. It requires all religion. And you heard that in the piece we just watched on video, that, that, that there's this, this kind of way of looking at God that says no one person can possibly know the whole picture. And it, on the face of it, it seems kind of humble to, to tell that story and say it. It seems, it seems a little bit like we're, we're being very tolerant and it seems honorable. But then once you kind of peer into the story, you realize there's a bias here that reveals a sort of arrogance. And that is that if you're going to tell the story, if that's your conclusion, then you're putting yourself in the place of the king who gets to see it all. That somehow if you tell that story, there's a sense of which you're, you're putting yourself in the place of knowing it all, and this is the conclusion you've come to. There's a subtle arrogance that attaches itself to the story. And so I think, the, you know, the, the, everybody has these different views. I mean, there's no doubt that religions think differently. They, they, they claim to know different truths. If you, if you look at the, the way we look at God in the Trinity as Christians, right? This is a unique way of looking at God. Uh, three in one, always in fellowship and relationship. One and yet three, inviting us into the relationship with him. That's pretty unique. That's a, that's a claim that's pretty exclusive. If you, if you look at, I mean, you look at Judaism or Islam, God is one, right? And they have a picture of God that's pretty exclusive in the way they claim for him to be. Hinduism, there are many gods, so many we don't even necessarily know them all, and we stumble onto them. Or you have even the, the, the way that we have sort of created a spiritualism in our American 21st century uh, experience, sort of a... a a self-made uh, religious experience. And the, the, the one who espouses this with the most clarity is probably Oprah. Right? She, she takes a little from all these. In, in, in the New Testament, Paul had the same problem with uh, the Colossians and the Ephesians, and, and he was dealing with uh, syncretism. They just kind of dump it all in together. But I think probably the way to, to, to deal with this is to just admit that those differences are there. 
And that the power of living in a country where you, and at least it used to be this way, it's getting more and more difficult, but it used to be that you could talk about ideas and let the marketplace of ideas just be discussed. Let's talk about them and let's respect one another. Let's, let's listen to each other. If you think about it, the dumbing down of religion actually gets rid of diversity. If all religions are kind of the same and we're just always emphasizing the commonalities, then there is no diversity and there's really nothing to discuss anymore. It's kind of sad. That seems more narrow to me than the ability to have diversity and to be able to discuss. So I just think we should kind of be honest. Let's say what it really is, but let's have a discussion. And for our part as Christians, we need to be as respectful and honorable about what Jesus said. Let's admit our exclusivity. So when we ask the question, what is Christianity too narrow? We have to define a couple of terms, don't we? First definition we have to come up with is Christianity. Strangely enough, we have to do this in our culture. We, we, could, we could opt for the, the self-help brand of Christianity, where God is kind of your cosmic butler, and uh, he's there to give you stuff, and, and if you'll just serve him, then you get all this stuff. Um, that kind of flies directly in the face of Luke 9.23 that says, if Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, your instrument of death. <laughs> You're, and you've got to give up your life and follow me. So that's not a good uh, example. We could go with a very religious and legalistic version. Uh, many uh, different brands of Christianity or, or Catholicism kind of focus on what we do and kind of the, 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 the folk conformity of those who are in charge. And, but I think that sounds a bit like slavery. And Paul said very clearly in Galatians 5, he said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free from that kind of legalistic mindset. Okay, are you tracking with me? Some of you are like, where is he going with this? Just stay with me. We could define Christianity as the politicized religious rhetoric that's talked about on cable news. That would be bad. That would be bad. Because it's so simply defined in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes would not die but would have eternal life. So Christianity must be, we have to, we have to sort of agree on our terms here. We have to be like the Apostle Paul in Philippians uh, 3.10. He says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings so that somehow I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's a resurrection life that comes to us when we believe in Jesus and the work he did at the cross and the work of the Father that makes us his children. We're born again and the power of God's spirit comes and dwells on the inside of us. That's what I'm talking about. To non-religious people, a lot of that sounds crazy. Just as crazy as it would sound to me if somebody showed up and said to me, oh, I was talking to Buddha this morning. Right? So we, so we have to acknowledge that we have to see that that's there. They see, they tend to see, non, non-religious people tend to see legalism and judgmentalism. They see the, 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 the bad parts of both Christianity and other forms of religion. And so... 
The problem is these are human additions rather than genuine attempts at connecting with God. So today we're going to use this, this term, ready? I'm, I want you to use this as definitions. We're going we're gonna to define religion as humanity's attempt to reach God. The idea of being religious as man's attempt to reach God. You see it all over across the planet. You see people engaging in activities to get to God, whether it's self-sacrifice or some kind of um, uh, 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 appeasing of their God uh, or some kind of legalistic thing. Uh, in fact, Jesus really wrestled with this with the Pharisees. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Christianity then is God's attempt. Christianity then is God's attempt to reach humanity. And in a sense, we, we, have, to, we have to take the words of Jesus in, in how he explained the narrowness of it. So look in your Bibles to Matthew 7, and we'll read that scripture there. Matthew 7, verse 13. It says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Jesus is saying that there's a huge group of people going towards destruction, and it ain't hard to find it. I'm always amazed at how easy it is for our kids to find the bad kids. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, my kid is the bad kid. But <laughs> it is amazing how, it is amazing how influence uh, travels and, 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 and how easy it is for, for us to just kind of be taken down a road. It doesn't require any skill or expertise. You kind of just go along with the crowd. But Jesus is saying... In verse 14, he says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So what is Jesus saying here? I want to challenge your way of thinking about what Jesus is saying. While I think this is an exclusive claim, I want to deal with the idea of being narrow-minded. And so I want you to think about what Jesus describes here as a narrow way to life. It is a very narrow way to find life. Jesus describes narrow as the way that we get life, but not the attitude for life. Are you with me? Not the, it's, it's a narrow way to find life. It's not a narrow attitude of life. It's not a narrow mindset towards ourselves or towards others. The narrowness that he's talking about is the truth of Jesus. The, the, the truth of his sacrifice and his representation as the love of God, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about finding him and being willing to trust him. And so narrow is the road that leads to life. It is not an exclusive pathway for holy people. It is a place that we find God's grace. And I want to say this, narrow doesn't mean intolerant. Narrow, this is not intolerant. Jesus is not talking about intolerance here. If you think about intolerant, what does intolerant mean? Then we gotta, we gotta kind of wrestle with that. Intolerant describes a person who is not open to others. Not open to others at all, but only to what their uh, attitude is towards others. It's not the attitude of Jesus. It's not the it's not the way Jesus interacted with people. He did not interact in a narrow-minded fashion. It is the antithesis of Jesus. Jesus was totally open to others, inclusive of others, intentional in reaching out to others, breaking all kinds of cultural barriers 
of the religious people of his day. He broke all the barriers of the religious people, and he did it on purpose. Jesus was kind of irreligious. I like this about him. I think this is an important idea to understand about what Christianity is. Think about, let's just give some examples. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, if you know the song uh, from Sunday school, he was a tax collector, and, and, and he was a wee little man, and he was up in a tree, and Jesus is going along with the crowd, and Jesus spots him, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I think he was doing it just to mess with the religious people, because tax collectors were hated. They were loathed. These people were stealing from everyone. They were crooked. And so he, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. And it started a chain of events in Zacchaeus' life that resulted in him paying back everybody he'd ever stolen from. And his heart turning towards Christ. The woman at the well in John 4, this is a Samaritan woman, middle of the day, hanging out at the well. Jesus violates the idea of, of, first of all, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan, but also a man speaking to a woman. And so he, he crosses the barrier and opens up the conversation and begins to talk to her about her life. He doesn't judge her and beat her up. He actually illuminates the struggle in her life. He illuminates the problems, and he begins to share with her what the answer is. Number, uh, the, the next thing is the woman caught in adultery. This is a woman who was thrown down at Jesus' feet, and the religious leader said, all right, she's guilty. She's guilty of adultery. The law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? It's a trick question, right? Because they wanted him to say something that was against the law. So they were baiting him. But Jesus was so brilliant. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, you know what he said? He, he kind of, here's what, essentially what he said. He said, yes, she's broken the law and she should be stoned. Whoever is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. <laughs> he didn't deny that she was guilty. He didn't deny. What he said was, we have to see this thing differently. And he poured out his own grace and mercy, and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? When they, they dropped their rocks and started walking home, and, he, and she said, they're not here. And he said, go and sin no more. Jesus had a different way of dealing with people. A man with leprosy in Matthew 8, Jesus crossed the culture barrier of touching a, a leper. You weren't supposed to do it. It may, would have made you unclean, besides the fact that it was... Um, that it would spread the disease. The story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus attempting to say, we're supposed to love people who aren't like us. In Luke 10, the parable of the great banquet, this parable of the great banquet, Jesus tells you, he says, I want you to invite the poor and the lame and the, and the, and the, the weak, the crippled. And then he gets, he, he, there's this story about the rich young ruler. Do you know this story? The rich young ruler, I want you to turn there and see it. The rich young ruler is in Mark chapter 10. Just go over there real quick. Are you still with me? Are you tracking with me? Is your mind going, thinking? Mark chapter 10. And he's, he, this is so fascinating how this happens. Here it is. He says in verse uh, 13, he says, or sorry, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. And no, no one is good except God alone. 
No one is good except God alone. Jesus was emphasizing the fact that we all, all of us have issues. All of us have sinful behaviors. Jesus is identifying it. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him. I love this. Verse 21. Look at it. If you have your pen, underline it in your Bible. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Have you ever had somebody look at you and love you as they looked into your face, as they looked into your soul? That's what Jesus was doing. He he had the conversation not about beliefs, not just strictly about beliefs. They were having the conversation about that. But something else came into the conversation. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, because this is how Jesus always works. He zeroes in on the narrow path. He zeroes in on the, the, the difficult thing for you to give up. He, he zeroes in on the fact that he does want exclusive rights to your life. He does want to have exclusivity with you. You realize that the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in this way, it is quite narrow because truth, this truth is narrow. And he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have to give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He's he's like, yeah, this is really tough on people because riches grip your soul. They grip your heart. It's really hard for rich people. Most of you don't have to worry about this, but... It's really hard for rich people. And, and you, some people think that this, he tells a little story here and it's an analogy. I don't think so. I think he was really being honest and truthful because the, what, the, what the disciples said is, they said, well, then who could be saved if this is how hard it is? And he said, with man, it's impossible. With God, this is where he says it, with God, all things are possible. See, there's a supernatural part of the journey here in discussing what the narrow way is. Look at John chapter 1. Go over to John chapter 1. It's just a few pages to the right of where you are in Mark. John chapter 1, verse 14. And you can see here that John is talking about Jesus in in chapter 1. And he says... In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And what is this phrase right here? If you could see it on the screen, say it together. Full of grace. He was full of grace and truth. Look at, if you skip down one verse, he kind of describes this. He says, out of his fullness. What is he saying? Out Out of what's in Jesus. Jesus has grace and truth. He doesn't just have truth and he doesn't just have grace. He has has all of it in its fullness. He says, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What does that mean? Grace in place of grace already given. You could see this as God's grace to 
the people of Israel, his, the nation of Israel. He gave them what? His favor because he gave them his word. He gave them his law. And this was very important to them. And, and, and what happened here is as they began to encode it and try to pass it on to others and try to teach it to others and they, and they, they tried to, to define it in a greater way and the law began to, began to be defined in a greater way, it began to be ritualistic and it somehow it, it was drained of its relational capacity. Jesus, Jesus came to restore the original intent of God in his people, and that was a relationship with them. He wanted their hearts, not just their minds. And what happened was you could see the culmination of this idea of passing on the definition of these laws in the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the word means separate. The Pharisees were the ones that lived the law to the very nth degree. They were the best at it, and all the people felt like they couldn't measure up, and the people felt like there were heavy burdens laid on them because of these religious constraints. And Jesus was not harsh on the poor and the blind and the lame and the cripple and the people who struggled with their faith. He was harsh on the religious people who put heavy burdens on other people's backs. And so we see this as it plays out. John is saying there's a greater grace that's come than the law. And it's called truth. And verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that truth is kind of a narrow path. There's no doubt about it. No way around it. Truth is a narrow path, but grace is a wide ocean. And Jesus has them both. Jesus has both tr the truth of the way to get to God. Christianity, in a sense, is impossibly narrow. Think about it, impossibly narrow. How, how, how can I get to God? You can't on your own. You need help. There is no way for you to get to him. There is no way for you to become acceptable to him. It is impossible. This is the, this is the wonder of Christianity. This is the message of the gospel. It, it requires yieldedness and surrender. It requires total surrender to the work of Christ. And so you, you think about it. You can make yourself a Jew. You can follow all the prescriptions. You can make yourself a Muslim. You can make yourself a Buddhist. But there's something you cannot, there's something here that's so profound, you cannot make yourself a Christian, although many people try. When you try to make yourself a Christian, it ends in disaster. It ends in religion. It ends in putting heavy burdens on your own heart and on the hearts of others. It creates condemnation in yourself. There is something here that is so powerful. We've got to see it. The truth of Jesus is narrow. He is the gate. And yet there is a huge, wide ocean that is to follow. I want to say one last thing, and then I'm going to coach you for a second. I think one of the power, most powerful ways to deal with the is Christianity too narrow question is it, does, it, it doesn't seem like we use the same words with people who we 
love or the people who we know relationally. You can't, as we do with people that we're just discussing philosophy, right? The people we're just discussing philosophy and we're not engaged and, and bought into their life, we're not invested in their lives, we talk different. But the minute you become friends, the minute you become invested, the minute you become engaged with a person and you get to see inside their life, it changes the way you think. And, and here's the thing, you can't force them you can't force them to become a Christian. Guess what? You are not junior Holy Spirit. There is no badge you can wear. There is no way you can wear the badge and flash them the badge and say, well, you know, the Bible says, and you need to blah, blah, blah. Right? Okay, you may have that discussion, but it is not up to you to convict them of sin. That is the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit's job is for you to convict them of sin, and, it, and, it, it, and they may react strongly because this Holy Spirit's working on them, and they're resistant they may react strongly to the relationship and they may accuse you of all kinds of things. They may accuse you of being narrow-minded. But, but what I think happens often is there is no accusation of being narrow-minded when you're willing to reach out and be intentional with someone and you begin to love them. When you have the kind of, and, and it, it, it's changed for me. I, I had a, a relationship and I still have a relationship with a, with a friend who is, is, he's, is a gay man and he, he's, He's wrestling with his relationship with Jesus and has been for a long time. And he's struggling with how to define it and how the scriptures define it. And we've had conversation after conversation after conversation. And I, I you know, at first I, I, I didn't know how to engage with him exactly as we were getting to know each other. But what happened to me as I got to know him in a deeper way, it changed me in the way I talked to him and the way I looked at him and the way I described the truth. I did not give up on the narrow truth that I think is profound in Jesus. But I gained the permission to say it through eyes of love and it changed my heart towards him. I began to have a compassion on his and his wrestling. I prayed for him more deeply as we got to know each other. And, and, he, and he's, he hasn't really budged, but we've remained friends. And I continue to hold the standard of truth that I think the scriptures articulate. But I believe the Holy Spirit is working in his life. And our job is to make sure that that is happening through us as best we can. He doesn't see me as narrow-minded. He sees me as having a different point of view than him. But I respect him, and he is my friend, and I've invited him into the life that I think Jesus offers. So what I want you to do, very quickly, I just want you to do a few things. We're almost, we're really out of time, but Colossians says this, if you turn over to Colossians chapter four, do that with me. Colossians chapter four, it used to be in my Bible here somewhere. <laughs> here it is in verse, <laughs> chapter four, verse two, it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery. By the way, hey, it is a mystery. 
it, people's, people's eyes have to be opened and unlocked. And that typically only happens by prayer. He says, he says, pray for us that the mystery of Christ could be revealed for which I am in chains. And pray that I may proclaim it clearly. Everybody say clearly. Clearly as I should. Be wise. Everybody say be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Be watching for the opportunity. It's coming. It's in front of you. You gotta be ready for it. You, you, you can't get to the opportunity and then try to, psych yourself up. You have to be ready for it. He says, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. What's salt for? Salt's for making stuff taste better. There's something about being attractive to others, letting your speech be seasoned with salt, grace, and as you share the truth, they get to be attracted to it. There is still a war for their souls going on, and so there's no guarantee that they'll respond well. But this gives us kind of four ideas, this little outline. Number one, you should pray. The prayer is the starting point. You should have three to five people that you're actively praying for every day, thinking about who, when you're going to get a chance and an opportunity to speak into their lives. You're praying for them and the conversations you're going to have. You're going to pray for them over and over and over again and let God begin to lead you and direct you and give you wisdom. Number two, you got to get out there. You gotta be with them. You gotta make. You gotta create excuses to be with them. Whether it's watching the game or whether it's uh, hanging out uh, at Starbucks or wh whatever it is. Don't don't. Sometimes there is a tendency to cloister ourselves and we get inside of a little bubble and sometimes when we have young families like I, I realize it's like when we start having little kids it's, it feels more dangerous for us to be out and about with people who don't know. God and their kids are being raised in all kinds of crazy, doing all kinds of crazy things. We're facing this at our own school. We, we, our kids go to public school, and, and, and it is a challenge to take a risk. But I think it's part of being out there. It's part of being willing to be connected to people who need Jesus. Think about your proximity to others and whether or not you're with them enough. Number three, listen more than you think, or sorry, more than you talk. <laughs> you, should, you should think. You should think while you're listening. <laughs> um, but you should not talk more than you think. Listen more than you talk don't assume you know what they believe. Don't assume. You could, I mean, it could be. I, I knew this lady that was a Buddhist. I mean, I didn't know she was a Buddhist. I thought she had a different perspective. I got a whole new perspective on her life that day. Don't assume you know. Listen to them. Let them, he, let them be heard. That sends a message of respect. Number four, build some bridges. Build some bridges. Do some things intentionally. Build some bridges into their world. Make sure that you're creating an opportunity to connect with them. Now, I want you to close your eyes right here, right now, and I want you to think about these things that we've just talked about. Don't, don't burn the bridges if they don't believe what you believe. Don't, don't tear them down. That, that will lead you exactly. If they want to burn down the bridge, that's their, that's their thing. But sometimes when you build the bridge after they've burned it, that speaks even louder to them about the love of Christ. There's something, something really powerful here about letting, turning the other cheek and loving your enemies and letting, just putting up with it. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in you. I want you to think, close your eyes and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I wonder what it would look like 
if we could do these things on a consistent basis, I, I wonder what it would look like for you. I pray that our church community will be a place where in just a winsome manner, an easy way, we could have these kind of conversations. The places we go, the places we hang out with, at the, pe- the, the people that we are in relationship with. Imagine if we were all able to do these things. Would, if we were able to live like Jesus lived, would people accuse us? They might. They might accuse you of being narrow-minded. But it, they, they accused Jesus, actually. The religious people got him. That was his plan, of course, to give his life. You may have to sort of lay down your life in a certain way for someone. But my hope and my thought and what I think the scriptures teach us is if we pray and if we invest and if we will let God use us, then what we will see is people responding to the message of the gospel. To some, it will be the smell, the aroma of life. And to others, it will be the stench of death. But regardless, we need to be the ones, not narrow-minded, holding up the truth. The truth is a pathway, grace, an ocean. I want to pray for you. God has provided everyone a a way to receive peace. It is, he, he is most inclusive in this way. He is profoundly inclusive, not exclusive. He has provided peace for every person. Following Jesus, different from every other religion on the face of the planet because he sacrificed to get us rather than us sacrificing to get him. Most religion boils down to trying to get to him, but Christianity is about him coming to us. And if, if you're here this morning, you believe that God is coming to you in a new way, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. But I want you to respond to the work of Christ in your life. If you say to me, Pastor Ross, I, I really, I need to make a commitment to Jesus today. I, I, I have avoided it. I've, I've denied it. I've been distracted, I've been hurt, or I've been maybe insistent on my own way, but now today I realize I need to surrender to the truth of Jesus and receive this ocean of grace that he has for me, that he's calling me. If that's you, if you need to make a commitment today for the first time, or maybe the first time in a very long time, would you just signal that to me? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pray a short prayer. Just say, Pastor, please pray for me. Anybody, just lift up your hand. Shoot it up in the air right now. Yep, I see you, brother. Who else? Who else? Don't hesitate. Yeah, I see you over here, ma'am. Anybody else? Who else? I'm going to pray this prayer over you. Father, thank you for your grace today in our lives. Thank you for forgiveness. We commit our lives to you today. I, we, we take a moment, we say, we surrender. A bunch of us who know you surrender again to power.
patterning our lives after Jesus by the work of the Spirit that goes on within us. We surrender to that process. We surrender to being shaped like Jesus, to having words like Jesus. Some of us in the room, we surrender to to following Jesus like we haven't been. And so, Lord, forgive us, cleanse us, heal us. We choose you above all else. And we thank you. Thank you for mercy and thank you for grace. Thank you for favor that's come upon us today. In Jesus' name. Now listen, if you made a commitment today, I want to help you with next steps. This connection card in the worship guide, I want you to fill that out and drop it in the offering bucket as it goes by. All right? You can also take it and put it on the table back there and I'll get it just the same. But I would love for you to help us walk with you on your journey of faith. Don't be isolated. Don't be alone. So the last thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to give in our tithes and offerings and we're going to give to the Lord. If you're here for the first time, this is not something we necessarily expect you to give to, but it's something we've committed to as one chapel because it proclaims that Jesus is our provider and that we trust him and it makes us like him in becoming generous. So let's pray. Father, we love what you're doing in our lives and now we give to you because it's an act of worship. It's part of our worship to you. So receive it multiply it, expand it, share the message in our city and all over the world. We love you. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, stand up with us. Let's worship while we give.